This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. I am Bruce Janu, and I'm releasing this novel one chapter at a time. On the last episode, we went back to Robert's dreams. Yes, he had another dream about the war, and this time the dream was more intense, more real. If you haven't listened to that episode or previous episodes, please do so. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, Lilac wine. Chapter 19 The banner that Ellie had worked on all night flapped in the breeze as she directed her husband and Herbert Decker, the town barber, in attaching it between two trees so that it hung exactly over the center of the small stage erected for the 4th of July celebration. A little to the left, she said. No, too far. Bring it back a little. Rose, who sat on her bench, enjoyed the scene, thinking that Ellie looked like a conductor of a symphony, waving her arms back and forth. She smiled and imagined music, humming Ave Maria, quietly in her head. Perfect, announced Ellie. Now just tie off those bottom cords. The men did what they were told without complaint and then joined Ellie in front to admire the placement. The white cloth hung tight, the black letters boldly admonishing the town to buy Liberty Bonds. But buy was spelled B-Y. Herbert stole a glance to Charles, who also noticed the mistake. As he opened his mouth to alert Ellie to the grammatical error, a sharp glance and a shake of the head from Charles told him that it was best to let it go for the moment. Ellie brushed her hands together. Now, on to the bunting. As Ellie and her helpers tied red, white, and blue ribbons to the stage and to the ends of each of the white benches that had been brought out for the occasion, others were busily working over the pig that was roasting nearby, the scent of pork billowing in clouds over the triangle. Children climbed the statue, tying a patriotic ribbon across the chest of the nameless soldier. The band began setting up on the stage. Although the festivities were not to start for at least an hour and a half, boredom forced Robert to go early. As he opened the front door, he noticed a figure on the corner of the street, mere feet from the gate leading up to the porch of the house. Even with his back turned, he could tell it was Billy. How long he had been standing there, Robert was not sure but it looked as if he had been trying to convince himself to knock on the door. He gently rocked back and forth, an occasional furtive glance to the house, hands deep in his pockets. Robert could tell he was still reeling from the encounter on the boat, no doubt feeling guilt over what happened. Hi, Billy. Surprised by the unexpected voice, Billy turned. Oh, he said, just coming over to see you. Small talk followed. 
Billy commented on Robert's eye, which was still black and blue, but no longer swollen. They talked about the weather. When Billy attempted to apologize again for the commotion the other night, Robert held up a hand and merely invited Billy for a walk to the downtown area. They walked there in silence, Billy kicking stones all the way down the gravel road. Art's house was a short jaunt to the Triangle, and by the time they arrived, a couple of dozen people milled about. Ellie was frantically buzzing here and there, making sure all of the details were acceptable. I've never seen so many people here before, commented Robert, overlooking the scene. Just wait. More will come. They come out of the woodwork for this one. People you usually don't see. But it seems to get smaller every year. More people go to Dubuque nowadays, I reckon. Robert could hear Art's voice in the distance. He was standing near the spit, his large frame obscured by the smoke from the fire. Several men were there, including Gerald and Tom. They were arguing over the spice rub used on the pig and who had a better spit-turning technique. It was the same argument they had every year. Beyond the triangle, several men were unloading boxes from a truck. This was going to be the first year that Lily Springs was to have a fireworks display. Granted, it was not to be large. The committee was only able to raise so much money to hire an outfit from Dubuque to set up the fireworks, citing his stint as a member of Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Not to mention being the town's constable for the last several years, Tom had volunteered himself to set them off at the appropriate time. Ellie believed that this would be the defining moment for this year's celebration. That and the special guest, of course. Any idea who this special guest is? asked Robert. Billy shook his head. According to town gossip, only Ellie knew. She didn't even tell Charles, but had made all the arrangements herself. Speculation abound. There was talk that Governor Clark was going to make an appearance. Others countered that it was doubtful that the governor even knew of the town's existence. Some believe that Eddie Kias, a lifelong resident of Dubuque and a former pitcher for the Cleveland Blues, was headed to Lily Springs for the celebration. Although he hadn't played baseball in nearly 30 years, Kias was still very popular in Dubuque and made regular appearances, signing autographs or showing off his rather acrobatic ice skating skills during the winter months. Robert even noticed a few boys running around with baseball mitts, no doubt in hope that the former star would come. Mabel Glassman told anyone who would listen that Wilson himself was going to be their Hawking Liberty loans, but no one listened to Mabel. The town triangle was filling up fast. Dozens of bodies dressed in the white of summer fashion mingled together near the stage. The few children that lived in Lily Springs congregated around Charles Peterson, who dug deep into an insulated cart surrounded by bottles of various colored liquids. They were patiently waiting for a paper cup of his shaved ice, provided free for the festivities. Although his most popular flavor at the pharmacy was egg custard, the children all wanted blueberry, as that was only brought out as a special treat on the 4th of July. It was common to see all of the children sporting a bright blue smile for the rest of the day. Want some? asked Billy. Robert nodded. As Billy galloped to the stand, he checked the crowd for any trace of Abelia. Nothing. 
It was still early, and Robert was optimistic that she would come. Others began to notice Robert's presence, however, and instead of smiles, he got the increasingly familiar downcast gaze, the occasional pointed finger as if to say, there he is, look out for that one. Rose glared at him from her bench, and Robert could only imagine what was going through her mind. It was amazing to him, this turn of events, nothing like being the subject of a welcome committee one day to being the scorn of the town the next. Billy seemed immune from it, however. Perhaps they simply assumed that Robert was the bad influence and not the other way around. The band began playing My Country, Tis of Thee, or at least something that sounded somewhat like My Country, Tis of Thee. The crowd turned their attention to the old man with a long white beard slowly raising the flag up the pole. When Billy returned with the shave ice, cherry flavor for them both, he identified the man as Harlan Goodspeed, the town's only Civil War veteran. Harlan stood in civilian clothes in stark contrast to Tom, who stood on the other side of the flag, his arm cocked in a salute. Tom was wearing his old uniform, khaki pants, blue shirt, cordoned with two bright white suspenders, a wide-brimmed hat, and a bright yellow bandana around his neck. His pants were a little too small, yet he squeezed himself into them every year. Some in the crowd hummed to the tune, others mouthed the words. When the music ended, there was enthusiastic applause as Gerald took to the stage, the tip of his hat now pointing to the word bye in the banner just above his head. It was then that others in the crowd began to recognize the mistake. There was muffled talk. Some pointed. Ellie, who was sitting on the stage under the word liberty, looked up at her banner. Her face instantly turned a bright red. She shot an angry glance toward her husband, who quickly looked away, probably regretting the fact that he did not say something earlier. This is a, Gerald began, looking to Rose, who still sat on her bench, heck of a day. He smiled and Rose nodded her head in approval. The crowd laughed a little, knowing that one of Gerald's favorite words was hell. Rose consistently pointed out to the mayor that if he kept it up, he would be spending some quality time in that place he so liked to invoke. Gerald then commented on the size of the crowd and gave thanks to the committee in charge of putting together the festivities. Ellie beamed, forgetting about the banner for the moment as she was called up to the podium. My fellow Lily Springsonians, she said. She was the only one in town to use that term, as most thought it just plain strange. Why not spring sin? Someone asked at a committee meeting several years ago after hearing her use it for the first time. Ellie insisted that Springsonian sounded better than Springsian. What the hell is a Springsonian anyway? asked Gerald at the time. We don't live in Springsin. Others nodded their heads in agreement, but it didn't matter to Ellie. She continued using the term and felt comfortable doing so in front of the large crowd that had gathered at the Triangle. It may have been the largest crowd in years. Even Owen came, his leg propped up on a stump as he sat under a tree. 
This is a very important day, not only for the nation as we celebrate 141 years of freedom, but for this small town as well. Today, Lily Springs will be asked to do her share for this great crusade in Europe. She nodded to the band, which struck up another tune. It took a moment for Robert to recognize the music. It was Sousa's Stars and Stripes forever, yet he had never heard it played in such a way. He had heard that song often in the piano shop, especially on days when the pianos were being tuned. But the tempo was off. The band lacked a flute player, so the melody was basically unrecognizable at first. But soon the crowd began clapping, the musicians clearly enjoying their time on the stage. It was the trombone player who lagged behind, making it seem that the band was playing two different songs. He was clearly having difficulty breathing into the instrument, just like on the day Robert arrived in town to the barely recognizable Battle Hymn of the Republic. The crowd didn't care, however. People stood, some whistled, and with each bit of encouragement, the band played louder and more forcefully, especially near the end. When it was over, the audience erupted into cheers and applause. Way to go, Harold! Someone yelled. The trombone player merely gestured to the direction of the voice, clearly focusing more on the breaths he was trying to take. Robert admired the man's determination to play, despite his tendency to get winded. Ellie took to the stage again, a dark scroll in hand. As head of the committee, Ellie insisted that a reading of the Declaration of Independence be included as a mandatory interlude. The first celebration she put together as head of the committee a decade earlier included a dramatic reading of the entire document, grievances and all. People complained that it was just too long. After all, they said there was a pig waiting to be eaten. So it was decided over Ellie's objections that only the first two paragraphs and the final paragraph would be read. And Ellie read them with dramatic style, bringing her voice down an octave for dramatic flair. Robert found himself drifting during the reading. He looked into the crowd. A few people yawned here and there. Children kicked at the earth. Standing on the side near the front, Robert had a clearer view of those assembled. He surprised himself with the realization that he knew most of their names, no doubt due to the fact of delivering their mail for the last few weeks. Reverend Finkel sat in the front row. Visibly enjoying the performance, he nodded his head in agreement upon Ellie's recitation of Endowed by their Creator with Certain Unalienable Rights. His wife, Clarice, sat obediently by his side. Martha Strickman was knitting something in the third row. Joshua Harding was saying something to his wife, Gloria, who stifled a giggle and looked away. Oblivious to what was being read on the stage, two boys were throwing a baseball back and forth behind the crowd. Robert didn't know them, however. In fact, he didn't know the names of most of the children, as they rarely received mail. There were less than two dozen children of various ages in Lily Springs. They all attended the one-room schoolhouse to the west of town. Myrtle Stokes, who sat in proper poise in the fourth row on the right, had been Lily Springs' only teacher for the last 39 years. Accepting the post when she was 19 years old, she had witnessed most of the people in this town 
grow up, and leave. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, continued Ellie. There was John Hickman, a blacksmith of sorts and the official photographer of Lily Springs, Will Humphrey, the butcher, and his wife Abigail. Mr. and Mrs. Abel sat in the front row, smiling up at the reading. Sadie Abel clutched a fan in her lap, occasionally bringing it up to her face to fan away the small beads of perspiration on her forehead. Charlotte Cunningham sat in the fifth row next to several other widows from the community church of Lily Springs. Henrietta Longhorn, Flora Miller, Beatrice Carter, Lydia White. There was Maggie Churchill, the town's telephone operator, sitting with her husband, Louis. Just behind them sat... And then Robert saw her, slowly moving in the back behind the crowd. No one else seemed to notice her, but there she was. She wore a white dress and a wide-brimmed hat, her face shaded from the sun, which hung low in the sky. Although her dark hair was formed into a bun, carefully tucked under the hat, some strands dangled on both sides of her face, gently brushing her cheeks as she walked. Her eyes moved over the crowds as if searching for someone. Robert smiled and muttered, I'll be right back, to Billy, who was still busy tossing the remnants of the paper cup back and forth. Abelia caught Robert's eye as he made his way through the crowd, stopping to return the smile as he approached. Uttering excuse me here and there, Robert's heart picked up a beat or two as he made his way to the back of the audience. The brisk nature of his walk captured the attention of many in the crowd who turned their heads to follow the young man's trajectory. Even Ellie, who was now on the last paragraph of the declaration, became distracted and lost her place for the moment. It's Abelia Brody, someone whispered rather loudly. But neither Abelia nor Robert heard that voice. But others did, and they turned their heads and craned their necks to take a look. Most couldn't even remember the last time they had seen Abelia at the 4th of July celebration or at any event in Lily Springs, for that matter. Miss Brody, Robert whispered with a smile, it's nice to see you. Hello, Mr. Bishop, she replied with a subtle nod of the head. <clears throat> Ellie loudly cleared her throat, obviously annoyed at the distraction. Once she was sure she had everyone's attention again, she continued, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Keeping his eye on the stage, Robert tilted his head in Abelia's direction and whispered, I didn't think you'd make it. Abelia didn't say anything in return. She felt good, though, in spite of the strange feeling she had that people were very aware of her being there. Robert was no longer even listening to Ellie. He looked beyond her, beyond the nameless Civil War statue, beyond the town. Crossing his arms, his elbow brushed briefly against Abelia's arm. And he smiled. We have reached a milestone here at the Lilac Wine Podcast, and that is entirely thanks to you who have stuck with me for 
uh, 19 chapters. As of this recording, we have passed the 1,000 download mark. Chapter 18 brought us past that mark. So thank you so much for sticking with me on this labor of love. I don't quite know exactly where it's going to go. We're almost getting to the point where I have no more material and will begin to write new chapters as we go. It is officially summer for me. My teaching job ended, and so I've got this to work on, but I've also got another project that I'm working on too. So there's going to be some uh, conflicts. I'm working on a movie. I've made two of them already, and I'm in the process of making another one. So I will be doing that this summer as well. If you want some information about that movie, it's tentatively called This Sacred Place. And it is about the ending of a concert series that took place in a rural Pennsylvania church for the last 19 years. So I was out in Pennsylvania last week uh, recording the show and doing interviews and stuff. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, uh, happy about that. Um, it's nice to get back into doing that as well. I just have too many creative outlets. I really liked writing this chapter because it brings together all these characters from Lily Springs, a town that of course doesn't exist, but it's a town that I love. Uh, people that I love, the eccentricities of this town is amazing. And I particularly like when Robert is scanning the crowd and looking at all of those casts of characters. And of course, Ellie is a character herself with her husband. Uh, incidentally, her husband, who runs the pharmacy and doing the snow cones, back in 1917, one of the most popular flavors for shaved ice was egg custard. I've never had that, and I don't know if I would like that. I can't imagine what that is like. But this chapter sets up a series of events that's going to do a few things for the narrative here. Of course, Abelia comes to the 4th of July celebration. Robert is looking for her and sees her. And we hear that song. Now, uh, I wasn't planning on using that song in this uh, chapter, but it, I've used it several times now. And I think it's become Abelia's theme. We often hear it in her garden. We're not in her garden at the moment. But I think when Robert looks at her, uh, he could be. It doesn't matter where he is. All that it matters is that she's there. And so uh, I've always loved that song, and I just find it so appropriate. The song was written by Eric Satie in 1888 in Paris. He was a uh, composer, a minimalist composer. He didn't like using that term composer, though. He preferred gymnopedist. I'm not quite sure what exactly that means, but... That comes from a series of um, 
compositions he had called the Gymnopedes, and I'm sorry for massacring the pronunciation of that. So we've heard it several times, and we will probably hear it again. As the 4th of July celebration continues in the next chapter, um, Robert is going to uh, get another vision, if you will, but this time he's awake. So things are definitely changing a bit. So we'll be going back there, chapter 20, next week. If you have any comments or questions, please let me know. You could go to lilacwinenovel.com and fill out the comment form on the right-hand side or just go to your email and send me an email at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. Also, if you would, since we just passed this milestone, I am designing t-shirts. Going to be giving away t-shirts to you know, lucky listeners as a thank you for sticking with me all of these months. I don't know what design to use, and so I have a survey up with the two designs. Let me know what you think. Um, I sent an email to those of you on the email list. If you're not on the email list, go to lilacwinenovel.com and get on that list. I'll be giving updates, and it's through the email list where I will be selecting names of those people who win a shirt. So this summer, you may win a shirt. I'm not sure when I'm going to start making them, but it'll be sometime this summer. And if you do have a question or a comment, please, please let me know. I would be more than happy to answer them and even answer them here on the pod. As usual, thanks for listening. Couldn't do this without you. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes or an Apple podcast. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Fissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit lilacwinenovel.com to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.